Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. The very first time that I visited the city of Las Vegas was in the year 2001. I was 18 years old, and I came on a short-term mission team that was sent from my home church. We're okay. (laughs) That was sent from my home church in Tennessee. And I'll never forget the very first morning that we were here. We were staying at a residence inn in Henderson, and Pastor Mike Lauren, who was one of the founding pastors here at Hope, stood before our team, and here's what he said. He said, guys, over the next seven to eight days, you are going to be a part of something that is going to change the spiritual landscape in Las Vegas for generations to come. Now, I'm sitting there as an immature, arrogant 18-year-old, but when he said that, it kind of perked my ears up. And I immediately began to think, what in the world are we going to do for the next week that could possibly impact the spiritual landscape of Las Vegas for generations to come. I thought to myself, Billy Graham is coming to Las Vegas. <laughs> then I thought, no, we're going to take over local television. And I had all these thoughts that were running through my mind. And then Pastor Mike said this. He said, we've identified hundreds of neighborhoods across our city. And what we want to ask you to do as this mission team is to walk down the streets of those neighborhoods and pray over every single home. Now, once again, as an immature, arrogant 18-year-old, that kind of threw me for a loop. Because I thought to myself, what does prayer have to do with changing the spiritual landscape of a city for generations to come? Now, don't look at me spiritual, all right? You're judging me. And so I asked Pastor Mike that. I said, Mike, help me with this just a little bit more. What does prayer of God's people have to do with changing the spiritual landscape of a city for generations to come? And I'll never forget Mike's response. He said, we must lay a foundation of prayer as we begin this new church. He said, we can't change this city, but God can And over the next seven days, we're asking you as this mission team to beg God to do it. And I'll be honest, as an 18-year-old, that was an eye-opening, heart-shaping moment for me. Because I saw the significance for the very first time of what happens when God's people become passionate about prayer. Now, I was saved at that point in my life, but I had never been discipled to really understand the significance of prayer in the kingdom of God. 
Now, I prayed in services, and I prayed for people, and I prayed over my food. But I had never prayed city-changing type prayers. But I left that trip in 2001 with this reality about prayer burned on my heart. God moves in response to the prayers of his people. Henry Blackaby made this statement. He said, prayer is not a substitute for hard work. Prayer is the work. God does things in and through our lives by prayer that he does in no other way. As we pray and as our attention is turned toward God, we become more receptive to aligning our lives with his will. God will not equip us with his power while we are racing off to our next appointment. His spirit will not empower us if we are oblivious to what he is saying. He requires our complete attention before he will fill us with the powerful presence of his spirit. So here's what we're going to do for the next two weeks as a church. We're going to take this Sunday and next Sunday, and we're going to examine what the scripture teaches as it relates to God's people being passionate about prayer. So if you have a Bible today, would you look with me in Acts chapter 4? The book of Acts chapter 4, and in just a moment, I'm going to start reading in verse 23. But before I start reading in that verse, I want to catch you up briefly about what's going on in the book of Acts because it's, it's pretty radical. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends into heaven and gives the incredible challenge to his disciples to go be his witnesses all over the world. And once he ascends, the, the disciples gather together with other believers and they really don't know what to do. They're struck because they've been walking for, with Jesus for three years and now he's gone. The Bible records that a little bit later on the day of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit came and the church was empowered like it had never been empowered before. And as a result of God moving among these believers, the community began to take notice. And they gathered around where the disciples were. And at that moment, Peter preaches his first sermon in the book of Acts. And the Bible says when he preaches this sermon, that thousands of people put their faith in Jesus. And these thousands of believers begin to do life together. They begin to study the word. They begin to pray. They begin to share meals together. And as that is happening, one day, Peter and John are walking down the street, and they see a man who was born lame. He couldn't walk. And he'd been sitting in the same place for 40 years, according to Scripture. And everyone in the community knew who this guy was. And this gentleman who was lame asks Peter and John for some money. And then Peter makes the classic statement early on in the book of Acts. He says, gold or silver, I have none. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he got up and he walked. And the community was blown away by this. And so they begin to gather to see what just took place. This miracle that was so incredible. And as people begin to gather, Peter took that opportunity to preach his second sermon in the book of Acts. And the Bible says thousands of more people came to know Jesus. Well, by that point, the religious leaders there in Jerusalem had heard about it. And they were upset. So they arrested Peter and John and put them in jail. 
Well, the next day, they brought Peter and John before the religious council. And they said to them, by what authority are you saying what you're saying and doing what you're doing? And Peter said, it's by the authority of Jesus, who you killed, but whom God raised from the dead. And so they argue, and ultimately the council said, there's no charge we can bring against you, but we demand that you stop preaching, you stop performing miracles, and you stop carrying out the ministry of Jesus. And they release Peter and John. So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 4, verse 23, as Peter and John are released from the religious council. Look what the Bible says. When they had been released, they went to their own companions, the other believers, and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Verse 24. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, Here was their prayer. O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. The prayer continues in verse 27. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and you and your purpose predestined to occur. Verse 29. And now, Lord, take notice of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place. Through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the abundant grace, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had. It's a pretty incredible prayer meeting right here in Acts chapter 4. And today we're going to unpack from these verses the priority of prayer in the early church. I think we can all agree by reading that section of scripture that God was working in Acts chapter 4. And what was at the very heart of this movement was his people making a priority of prayer. I think T.W. Hunt did an incredible job at capturing the significance of what took place in the early days of the church in this statement. He said, if we examine the expansion of the church in the book of Acts and the epistles, we see convincing proof of the power of prayer. The early church had innumerable obstacles. Christianity was unknown and it was opposed by the authorities wherever it spread. 
It suffered constantly from false accusations and rumors, and it tended to attract the lower classes. Yet by the end of the first century, it had spread in exactly the geographical pattern commissioned by Jesus. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. The instrument of expansion was the church. The force the church was using was prayer. So what I want to do in our time together is I want to ask and answer two questions. As we look at this community of believers who gathered together for the express purpose of praying, of having a conversation with God, of talking and listening, of praying. Here's our first question today. How did the church pray? What were some of the things that really distinguished the way that this early church prayed? I believe there are four. Four characteristics that summarize how this community of believers in Acts chapter 4 cried out to God together. Here's the first one. The church prayed with corporate unity. This community of believers, they prayed with corporate unity. Look at verse 24. They lifted their voices to God with one accord. Here's what that means. That means every believer who was present had wrapped their heart around the same thing. And that one thing was the mission of Jesus. We learn from this passage that prayer thrives when we are united around Christ and his kingdom. When there is a oneness about a church, when there is a oneness about a community of believers, God moves in response to that unity. In John chapter 17, we see a prayer of Jesus. It's known as the high priestly prayer. And there's a lot of things that he prays for in John 17. But one of the things he prays for is the future generations of believers who would follow him. In essence, he prayed for us, the disciples that were to come who would follow him and put their faith in him. And I want you to listen in John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21, to what he prayed specifically for you and I. Here's what he said. He said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Those who would listen to the disciples and believe. For future generations. Here's what he prayed for us. That they may be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Of all the things he could have prayed. Here's what he prayed for. Unity. Oneness. That we would function, that we would pray, that we would live. Wrapping our hearts around the very same thing. Christ and his kingdom. What a challenge for the church in North America. You see, quite often, I believe that as a church, we are asking God to come and move by our praying. But by the way we live at odds with one another, we are telling God to go away. 
You see, disunity is a hindrance to the movement of God. And I hope if nothing else as you think about this, you can look inside yourself and say, Lord, is there anything going on in your family that I'm a part of that in any way grieves your heart and would hinder your movement in this fellowship? One characteristic of the way they prayed in Acts chapter 4 is they prayed with corporate unity. Here's a second characteristic. They prayed with God dependency. Not only did they pray with corporate unity, they also prayed with God dependency. Listen to some of these verses. Verse 24. They lifted up their voice to God and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Verse 27. He says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Verse 28, do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. As they prayed together, there was a moment when they acknowledged the bigness and the greatness of God. You could say it this way. Here was their heart cry. Lord, you are big and we need you. There was a dependency that shaped the way that they prayed Here in Acts chapter 4. I love what Jim Cimbala said in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. He said, prayer cannot truly be taught by principles, seminars, and symposiums. It has to be born out of a whole environment of felt need. If you say, I ought to pray, I will soon run out of motivation and quit. The flesh is too strong. I have to be driven to pray. What's so powerful about the early church is that the church was born in an atmosphere of prayer and praise. You could say it this way. The church was born in an atmosphere of God dependence. They were desperate for God in those days. Because here's the honest truth. Whether it's the church in the book of Acts, whether it's Hope Church, or any other church around the world. Desperate churches pray. Prideful churches don't. That's true. Churches that recognize their need for God. Those are the churches that pray. Churches that believe we've got this, they don't pray. At Hope, we pray. In our services, we gather throughout the year for large gatherings of prayer. We pray in small groups. We spend time with God praying as individuals because we believe we need Him. When we walk through our membership class, one of the things that I say every single time is that even though now, 14 years into the game, we have buildings and budgets and a great staff, we believe We are still as desperate for God today as we were when Hope Church was 18 adults in Vance's living room. We believe that we need him because the reality is if he is absent, it doesn't matter if 10,000 people are present. There was a God dependency that shaped the way that they prayed in Acts chapter 4.
The third characteristic that we see here is this. The church prayed with gospel urgency. The church prayed with gospel urgency. Verse 29 says this. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. The word now means at this present time. It's a word that indicates urgency. I want you to think about this story again. Peter and John are released from the religious council. They make their way back to the room where all these believers had gathered. What do they say? What do they talk about? I'll be honest with you. I would not have been comfortable in that room. Once again, don't look at me spiritual. They come back and say, hey guys, we got arrested. And we've been under the the light with the religious council for the past few hours. And they pretty much told us to stop everything that we're doing or that was going to happen again. If I'm honest with you, at that moment, I'm probably picking up my bag and saying, hey guys, it's been real and it's been fun, but it's not been real fun. We'll see you. (laughs) But they didn't do that. Peter and John did not walk back in that room and say, guys, it's bad. We're discouraged. We've been shut down. This is not going to work. That's not what they did. When they walked back in that room, there was a brokenness in their heart for the lostness of their city and the world. And that brokenness spilled into the prayer meeting that we just read about. There was an urgency. And as they prayed, their hearts continued to be broken over the lostness of the people around them. So much so that they said, Lord, move now. Do it now. We don't want another generation to go by where your gospel is not moving and spreading throughout the world. There was an urgency to what they were sharing. And once again, what the religious leaders did to try and end the movement only fueled it. John MacArthur made this statement. The church had successfully faced its initial trial of opposition. Instead of succumbing to the temptation to compromise the gospel, it became even bolder. The persecution also served to draw the congregation closer together and to their Lord. In what was to become a recurring theme in church history, opposition only made the church go stronger. I love that. We have, um, we have a church plant in San Diego, California, called the Station Church. The pastor of that church, his name's Josh Nelson. And um, I got an email yesterday that he had sent out to his church because as of yesterday, their school system changed the rules and churches can no longer meet in public schools anymore. And so today, the station church is not having a public gathering. They've tried to divide up in small groups, but yesterday, uh, the school called and said, hey, you can't meet there anymore. And I know that's not the worst thing that could ever happen But for this brand new little fellowship, that's a hard pill to swallow. And I want to read you uh, just a quick portion of, of what Josh said to his church. He said, we know that God has called us to influence this region and we are not backing down. 
What the enemy may use to temporarily set us back, God will use to propel us ahead and advance his kingdom even more. The mission of the station church is stronger than ever to connect the disconnected. We are going to carry the kingdom into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our families this week, and this temporary inconvenience cannot stop us. The church of Jesus Christ cannot be contained to a school auditorium. Quite often, when it comes to the church, opposition leads to opportunity. And I love how Josh's heartbeat has such an urgency as it relates to neighborhoods, workplaces, schools, families, hearing the gospel and being changed by the message of Jesus. There was a gospel urgency in the prayers of Acts chapter 4. The fourth and final characteristic we see about how they prayed is this. The church prayed expecting supernatural activity. Look at verse 30. They prayed, extend your hand to heal. And may signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I love that they begged God to move in such a way that could only be explained as God did that. So that only he would get the glory. There was a, there was a centrality to Jesus about their prayer that is powerful. The New American Commentary, it writes this. The request for miracles was not a request for power over their enemies. It was closely related to the request for boldness in witness. In Acts, the miracles are always in the service of the word. They are signs in the sense that they point beyond themselves to the ultimate power of the gospel message of Christ's resurrection and the salvation that is in him. This is what the community prayed for. More signs to undergird the word and more boldness to proclaim it. I love the classic phrase that Vance has used for the past 14 years at Hope. If God is not God, we are sunk. Just like for us, as we look at a city that is 92% without a relationship with God, it's overwhelming. Just like for these guys, as they thought about taking the gospel all over the world, it's overwhelming. God, if you are not who you say you are, we are sunk. So they prayed for supernatural activity that could only be explained as God did that. So that's how they prayed. The second question we want to conclude with this morning is this. What happened when they prayed? We see how they prayed, but what happened specifically when the church prayed? In verse 31, the Bible says, And when they had prayed, and then it goes on to share really three things that were a result of these believers praying together. Here's the first one. The church experienced the manifest presence of God. Verse 31, the Bible says, After they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. Now to bring clarity to this, here's what I want to paint for you. I want to share with you the two ways that you and I experience the presence of God. First of all, we experience the presence of God 
through the abiding presence of God. The abiding presence of God is a gift from God to all believers. If a person has been born again, that person is indwelt by the Spirit of God. If you are here today and you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God resides in you. At the moment of salvation, a person is filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. There are multiple places in the scripture that speak to this. I want to read two. One is in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. It says this, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Another text that speaks to this is 1 Corinthians 2. It says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. This is speaking of the abiding presence of God that speaks to us, that leads us, that guides us, that convicts us, that walks with us on a moment-by-moment basis. The abiding presence of God. But there's a second way that you and I experience the presence of God, and it's actually the way that they experience the presence of God here in Acts chapter 4. And that is the manifest presence of God. The manifest presence of God can only be experienced when believers are together in community. A verse that speaks to this is in Matthew chapter 18. The Bible says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. That's a verse of scripture that I really struggled with for a while because I thought to myself, if the Holy Spirit is in me, why do I need to be around two or three other Christians for for God to be there? Well, the issue with me is this is speaking about the manifest presence of God, not the abiding presence of God. There's a difference. You say, Pastor, explain that. I can't. But here's what I know. I know that there is a special way that God meets with his people when they are seeking him together. If we are not gathered with other believers seeking the heart of God, we cannot experience the manifest presence of God like they did in Acts chapter 4. As pastors, I want you to know one of the ways that we pray for our church. We pray that on a daily basis, as you spend time before God on a regular basis, that through the abiding presence of God, he would speak to you through his word. He would impress on your heart and conform you more to the image of Jesus. We pray that for you on a regular basis. But as we think about the small group gatherings that take place all over our city, As we think about gathering on Sunday every week, what we pray is that God would make real his manifest presence among us. We say, Lord, we know that you're in us, but we pray for you to move among us as we gather in community as your people. And in Acts chapter 4, that's what happened. This community was gathered together seeking God, and they experienced his manifest presence falling on them. And shaking the room where they were gathered. That's one result of his people praying. A second result of his people praying is this. The church was empowered by the spirit of God. They have this powerful moment when the manifest presence of God falls on them. And then if you look further in in Acts chapter 4 verse 31. It says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak the word of God with boldness. 
God gave them exactly what they asked for. They had just been persecuted by the religious council. The religious council said, don't speak the word anymore. So they walk into a prayer meeting, and what do they pray for? That God would give them boldness to proclaim the word. And immediately, God answered their prayer. The New American Commentary speaks specifically about what exactly this was at the end of verse 31. And I want to read that for the sake of clarity this morning. The New American Commentary writes, God gave them a tangible sense of his presence and his response to their prayer. And their prayer was fulfilled at once. Immediately they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word with boldness, just as they had petitioned. This was not a second Pentecost. They had already received the Spirit. The Spirit had helped Peter and John in a mighty way before the Sanhedrin. I love this statement. It was a fresh filling, a renewed awareness of the Spirit's power and presence in their life and witness. That's an incredible thing for you and I to pray for on a daily basis. God, would you give us a fresh, renewed awareness of your Spirit's power and presence in our life and in our witness? That's the second thing that happened here after they prayed. The last thing that happened is the church was being changed By the grace of God. In verse 33 it says abundant grace was upon them all. And that had some real implications. If you study the text you see that it affected the way they related to one another. They were being changed by God's grace. And so it affected their relationship as the body of Christ. It said no one had anything that they claimed as their own. There was radical generosity taking place as they were being changed by the grace of God. But not only that. There was a difference in their relationship with unbelievers. The Bible says that they were speaking with power the testimony of them being changed by Jesus and the power of the gospel to change lives. They were being changed by the grace of God. What an unbelievable picture in Acts chapter 4 of how the church prayed and what happened when they prayed. I love what Jim Cimbala writes in another one of his books. He says this in closing. The church cannot be the church without the Holy Spirit abiding and empowering it. The degree to which we understand and experience the Spirit of God will be the exact degree to which God's plan for our churches will be accomplished. If we downgrade the Holy Spirit, worse yet, if we ignore Him, and even worse than that, if we grieve or quench Him, we end up with a modern church that is totally foreign to the New Testament. As pastors, we have a burden that our church would be a church that prays. Just like we see this motto in Acts chapter 4, we would be shaped and we would pray with corporate unity, with God dependency, with gospel urgency, and expecting supernatural activity. And here's my challenge to you before we close. Next Sunday, we're going to practice what we just studied in Acts chapter 4. I'm not going to give you a lot of details. We've been working on it for a few months now. 
And I want to challenge you to be here next Sunday. But in preparation for next Sunday, I want to ask you to do something. This week, I want you to spend seven to ten minutes simply praying. And here's what I hope. I hope that our prayer time as individuals will prepare us for our prayer time next Sunday as a church family. Now, some of you hear me say that and think, oh my gosh, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> like, I don't pray at all. And you're asking for like 10, 15 minutes, 7, 10 minutes. Well, let me give you an outline that hopefully you can use just in your personal time with God to simply be in conversation with God at some point during the day. And it's just the word acts. We're going to put a slide on the screen so you can see it. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. We've got some cards at the information desk that have that exact outline on it. And I want to challenge you that at some point every day this week, you would just spend some time personally before God praying through the statements in the scripture that are listed in this outline. And once again, I hope that our time of prayer as individuals this week will prepare us for our time of prayer next Sunday as a church family. God moves in response to the prayers of his people. May Hope Church be a praying church.